I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Thomas O'Neill White. I'm Angelie Preston. We need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is What's Next. A dedicated hour to have important conversations about the issues facing the marginalized and underrepresented communities of Western New York and Southern Ontario. We're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truth. What's Next continues our mission to discuss race, equity, and the common concerns of Buffalo's East Side and beyond. In the suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. And we're in Olean High School for this uh, installment of What's Next. And with us, Dr. Janelle Morris, Superintendent of Olean City School or Central School? It is City School. All right. Very good. And, you know, it's an inter- interesting part. Of, like, we like to talk. I, mean, I think you obviously spent a lot of time in Buffalo. You knew a little bit about Olean, I'm sure, if o- only from, you know, news and things along those lines. But I think at the same time, there's a lot that people maybe in Buffalo don't know about Olean. Now that you've been here for a while, all over a, plus, a year plus, what about Olean? What are, what are the things that you have found out about being in Olean that, you know, maybe are a little bit surprising that people, other people um, from, let's say, Buffalo wouldn't necessarily understand? Okay, well, there's a lot of things that Mm. you may not know if you're in the Buffalo area about Olean. So it's a very small city school district area, so we're a little bit above three miles in square um, distance, and that means a lot of our students are walkers. It's a very um, small community with a rural feel. I call us rural adjacent. We are a small city school, but a lot of our kids walk. It's very community-based. It's very friendly. We're in this beautiful valley where, you know, we have a lot of community and connection here that's just amazing to be a part of. I'd like to explore the, the, that city-rural connection a little bit, but, but I want to just talk a little bit about your, your, your background, which is really a fascinating background in the sense that you actually, I think, started, what, as a biology teacher in the city of Buffalo School District? I did. I did. I started initially as a life science teacher. Okay. Um, that was for middle school. That was really fun. Um, we were very open to learning different elements of biology and physical science, and then I moved into biology biology and the high school level. I also taught taught AP biology and just it was really a fun time where just helping students discover things about life science and biology and science in general. I just love that that discipline. Which buildings were you in? I was at school 51. Um, I don't believe that building and definitely not that school are open anymore. Um, and then I went to Bennett High School, and I was at Bennett High School for the majority of my teaching career. I see. Okay. Yeah. And uh, what about um, what did you what did you learn about education in that city of Buffalo district? Oh, it was so fun. Yeah. I mean, it was really fun to just kind of capture that experience. Um, I found that students were willing to learn, and it was something where we could be as creative as we wanted to be. So, for example, um, we had the opportunity to get transportation to go and do a field trip. And I said to my life science students, I said, you know what, we're going to Tift. 
and we're going to observe um, animals in their habitat. And I'll never forget having this group of eighth graders and seventh graders running across the little hills, and we're running after the deer because we're <laughs> observing them in their habitat. And the kids were just so excited to do this and just kind of immerse themselves. Um, as an AP biology teacher, what was cool about that was we were creative. We wanted to teach AP, but um, we were given a distance learning opportunity. So I was able to collaborate with uh, students in Sherman and Franklinville, and we did a distance learning opportunity, and we would meet each other when it was time for laboratories. But it was so fun, you know, and we were so creative. Like, all right, I know you're in Sherman, I know you're in Franklinville, but we're going to get together virtually and do this laboratory think tank experiment, you know, and they just were so into it. They were open, they were happy to do these types of uh, uh, explorations in the science, and it really was a joy to do that. You know, as somebody who really struggled with high school biology, I wish you were my teacher, Dr. Oh, Morris. Oh, my yes. gosh. So how did you, <laughs> you said to me, I love the way you said it was fun. It well, was what, fun. What, 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 how did you make it. I mean, obviously, you have you had a, a key part in that. I mean, what what different elements did you bring to the classroom that you think helped make it fun? But it sounds like it was fun for you, and oh, obviously, yeah, it, it was, was fun for your for your students. Um, I just tried to look at the fun element of what I was trying to teach. So we were doing. Um, some cellular biology things. We did that with Jello. Like mm -hmm. you were able to make a eukaryotic cell and use Jello, and we had candy and 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 you know had ribosomes with little uh, pieces of candy and such. It was just being creative, and the kids were like, "We can eat this afterwards." <laughs> yes, you can if you want. And so many kids are now grown now course but they all would come up to me later on and say, they'd say I remember that um, experiment where we did um, a cell using jello and candy because we were had a hands-on application to help make that translation between what's on a 2d um, picture in your textbook versus what this really looks like in everyday life and using some connections between what you use in everyday life, such as candy or jello or something else, to make those connections for kids. They loved that. Um, we, for one of my um, units, I did a detective unit. So we asked uh, someone from the Buffalo. Uh, police department to come in and show us what they do to do some um, investigations about crime scenes and such. And so we were able to use that when we were doing some DNA um, explorations of how is this used in real life. And the more connections you made to real life, the more interesting it was for our kids, you know. So I think that just thinking about the topic and trying to make it as applicable mm -hmm. to real life and also making it as fun, you know, was a way to help bridge that be, uh, divide between dry material and something that's really fun to envision once you dive into it. As you well know, uh, um, certainly as an administrator, but uh, I'm pro you probably saw it as, as a teacher as well, you know, the, the City of Buffalo School District is one of the, has one, the, its student population, some of the most poverty-stricken you know, student bodies in the entire state of New York. Right. How did you, did you see that manifest itself in the classroom? Well, when I taught at 
Bennett, it was before they did the big renovation. And sometimes we had to be creative about how could we make sure that our students had access to the same type of laboratory experiences that maybe students in more resourced schools would have. And so I know I went and I was begging, borrowing, and stealing to try and find things that I could provide to our students. Like many teachers, I would take money out of my 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 check to, to fund things like making sure that they had the right notebooks. Every kid had to have a composition notebook, so I'd make sure that they would all have them. Um, but I also applied for like a grant through Cornell University. It was for uh, the Cornell Institute for Biology Teachers, and it allowed those us to be able to go somewhere it was like a a laboratory garage sale okay sure so you would go there in the summer they give you a week's worth of instruction at Cornell which was invaluable in teaching us some new um, technology that we could introduce to our school and then we could go and look at the um, the used but still good um, equipment that maybe the laboratory uh, faculty at you at Cornell right. had discarded so that we could go there and we could get replacements of our glassware and they gave us old um, computers that we could use to help um, you know allow our students to have that type of technological interface they gave us so many different um, laboratory equipment I would fill up my car <laughs> to the brim and I would bring all that stuff back and just infuse it into my classroom so our students had access to those types of materials that maybe some of their peers already had. So as we did the renovation, some of those things weren't necessary anymore, you know. I mean, we got new computers mm -hmm. and such, but it was a way to fill in that bridge and just being creative about how can I make sure they get the same experience and I might need to do a little creativity on my own I might need to buy a couple of things on my own but I was dedicated to make sure that they got the same experience a couple of questions about your teaching experience if, if you um, care to share um, let's maybe talk about the joy of, of teaching um, what was it what what, for, what was it for you I loved what I taught mm. um, I remember like being. The subject matter. I love the subject matter. Yeah. I remember being in seventh grade and my biology teacher showing us the DNA helix, and I was like, "Oh my gosh, this is so cool!" And how it could fit together, and how you could envision it, and just feel, just the idea of that. I told my dad immediately, "I want to be a biology. Um, I want to be a biology teacher. I think I started out with saying I wanted to be a biologist. And he said, well, biologists don't make a lot of money. I said, well, then I want to be a biology teacher. And he said, they don't make a lot of money either. And I said, all right, well, this is still what I want to do. <laughs> so, you know, I got into the classroom and it was so cool because I was like, oh my gosh, this is something I love and I can share that love with others. And my students were so open to learning that it was a way to share what my passion was. And I really enjoyed what I do. I really enjoyed teaching that, you know, that was where the joy came from. Sure. We hear so much about teacher burnout. Maybe that's what we can address a little bit later on from a administrative standpoint. But what about 
for you in your time as a teacher, what, what, was there something that kind of left you struggling or, or something you took home and you didn't, it didn't, uh, it was tough to deal with or did, did you love the whole experience? And I see you shaking your head as I'm yeah. talking about you can't yeah. really think of anything Yeah, I like can't that. really think of anything that soured my experience. Yeah. Um, I loved you, doing it. Yeah, you just, you loved the, the whole experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah I really did. Yeah. What do, what do you think? Is that a personality trait, do you think, as much as anything? I mean, I know I don't know. I'm, not, I'm asking you to self-analyze now. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Um, I just, as I said, seventh grade, I knew this was something I wanted to do. I knew that I wanted to be involved in science, and mm. I really loved that. And the classroom was a way to kind of apply that love I liked it. It was something I really enjoyed. I can't think of anything that said to me, "Oh, I hate this." Yeah. No, I I really loved it. Yeah, yeah, that's that's uh, great to hear for sure. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Dr. Morris, of course, uh, you did make the, the transition to administration. I did. I what, did. what was the driving force there? Um, I wanted to challenge myself a little bit more. I know I loved it, and I wanted to try something new. Um, so I went and enrolled at UB and I was able to take the admin classes and I was like, okay. Mm -hmm. And, but people kept asking me like, what do you want to do? Do you want to be like a building administrator? And everyone in the room said they wanted to be a building administrator. And my friends to this day still tease me because when they got to me, I said, no, I want to be a superintendent. And they were like, really? <laughs> <laughs> But I did. Okay. I was like, okay, I want to challenge myself. If I'm going to go down this road, I want to challenge myself. And I think that was really the the inspiration to go the admin route. I okay. want to challenge myself. I always knew I could teach. I loved teaching. And I could teach biology. I could teach science. And I would be happy. But I, I really enjoyed, too, challenging myself. So there was a little time before you came, became a superintendent. So you yes. spent time in uh, the Buffalo Public Schools Administration. Sure. Just tell, tell me about your experience, so, you know, the, the roles that you had. Well, I started out um, very, very, very briefly in research evaluation and accountability, which later on was where I spent most of my career. Um, but I started out initially very briefly there. Um, and then they, I was moved to a building. Mm. And in the building, it was great. It was just a different approach. It wasn't like being in a classroom, and it was more disciplinary. Um, and I was like, I want to capture something that still captures my passion, but it also allows me to feel like I've done something challenging. It's still pushing me to grow. And so that's how um, I ended up back in research evaluation and accountability. It's, later, it's now the Office of Shared Accountability. There was also another prompt in there as well. All the new um, assistant principals were laid off. Mm. And I was one of them. Oh. So <laughs> I <laughs> did go back to teaching biology during that layoff period. And once again, as I said, I was happy as a clam. And then um, I happened to see the person who was running the accountability department. And she said, you know, mm -hmm. you could always come back. And I was like, you know, I really enjoyed that. So I went back to accountability and I spent the majority 
of my administrative time there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What is it about the accountability that, oh that, that attracts you? Or it seems, again, I don't know, I, I have this feeling that no matter what topic I bring up, you're going to be enthusiastic about it. <laughs> our first there are some topics together. I'm not enthusiastic <laughs> well, about. Well, we'll keep digging for that. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, this was, this was really a challenge because I was given the responsibility of reporting all of the data for the second largest school district in New York. And at first it was intimidating, but I was like, I could do this. This is gonna be really, really fun to tackle. Um, and as I just jumped into it, um, I really just developed some processes and, and, and ways that you could do it in a way that allowed the accuracy of our data to be reflected in reporting. Um, I, I was very, very um, methodical in my approach, so that science background really helped. Mm -hmm. um, and it was just one of those things that I was in a groove, I could do this, this was great. So, you know, 36,000 students and their records, but I knew them. Like, I knew where every single template went and what every single template meant, and when you pulled them from a student information system, how that, how that translated. and and how to make sure that every single data set that was ever publicly reported had gone through a vetting process and been validated wow. to make sure that they were accurate. Just that whole thing was just really thrilling. Right. I know that's hard to understand sometimes, well, I, but. I, I mean, yes, <laughs> yes and no, but, it, but let's, let's turn that around now. Mm -hmm. So that information that you, you've clearly showed your enthusiasm for collecting mm -hmm. it and gathering it. At the same time, there might be people who say, too much, too much focus on data, whatever the case may be, or just a person who might say, oh my God, that sounds like as dry as possible. The importance, though, of gathering that information in terms of how that finally translates into the classroom, into the buildings. Talk about that, and, and I guess if I'm asking you, to make the case for how important that information is. Oh my gosh, it was so important. I don't think I really truly understood the magnitude of importance until I got into the role. So as in my, in my teaching role, I just knew that the students took their tests at the end of the year and they got certain scores and sometimes we were on a list and sometimes we weren't. Um, once I got into the role where I was overseeing all of the data from the entire district, I realized the critical eye that was needed to make sure that every single time a data point was reported about our students, about our schools, about our classrooms, that they had to be the most accurate data set possible because so many decisions, critical decisions, were made um, based on that data that was reported and it was our job in that department to ensure that that was accurate. There was no leeway for accuracy. I'm sorry. Oh, that's quite all right. Um, there was no leeway for the accuracy. It had to be accurate. Um, so we had at one point um, 25 receivership schools. These were like categorized as the worst schools in the state. It was important to examine every single data set. What did you learn? What did you I, learn? We learned that, you know, if there were any errors, it was our job to find them, make sure that they were rectified, 
make sure that they were validated, make sure that everybody knew what the data was saying. So if it was accurate, what is that saying? If it's inaccurate, it's our job to make sure that it's fixed. We would meet with our schools and have these conversations at all of the different stakeholder levels, trying to make sure everybody understood the the importance of examining our data. So um, for me, I was able as a teacher to impact a small group of students. Once I got into this role, I was able to help support the entire district. And that was something that was supremely exciting to me. What was the response though? Again, you were talking about those 25 receivership schools. What was the response inside those buildings when you were bringing this this, this data was being put in front of uh, administrators and perhaps teachers as well. Mm -hmm. what, what, what was the response? At first, I think people were very intimidated, like this is something we've been given as a label and there's mm -hmm. nothing we can do about it. And I was like, absolutely not. This is information. And it's our job to make sure that the information is used properly to help drive student outcomes. That's why we're here. and. There was a shift between, well, we send all our data to a central point, and then it goes through machinations that we don't know about, and then it comes out on the other side with a designation on the state side. No, 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 I told people, you have a part of this. So we made sure people had levels of access to their data so they too could be involved with its reporting. We told people they had a responsibility to go in there and look at that data and make sure that it was accurate. We told people um, we're going to have regular reviews of these data so that you know what's being sent up there on your behalf and there's a responsibility mutually to ensure that these data are reflective of what happened at your building. And so it, it was more than just this one directional reporting mechanism, this was now a partnership to make sure that whatever state had got and used to make their determinations, we as a collective have been involved in it. We went from 25 receivership schools to three. And that's in part because people really gathered around the idea that this was a mutual partnership to make sure that they had the most accurate data to make the decisions on the state ed side, and that was a collective responsibility from everyone. Stay with us. There's more to come. This is What's Next on WBFO. Did you know that WNED-PBS is always working on great new local shows for you to watch? Documentaries like Kleinhand's Gift to Buffalo, which tells the story of Buffalo's music hall. The hall is very intimate, and that intimacy makes everyone who comes in here feel a part of our family. Fun and educational series like Compact Science. Believe it or not, peppers are technically fruits. And Shakespeare's greatest hits featuring some of his best-known soliloquies and monologues. We are such stuff as dreams are made of. You can watch them all on our website at WNED.org slash local shows. While you're there, check out the show pages and many websites for additional content such as bonus features, photo galleries, and lesson plans. Find it all at WNED.org slash local shows. This is the Buffalo Toronto Public Media History Bite, bringing you a peek into significant historical events for the week of February 12th through February 18th. I'm your host and program director, Tom Barich. 
This week's History Bite is a little different, as that I'm only bringing up one fact. 1908 New York to Paris automobile race. Six cars representing four different nations started the 169-day race, making it, in terms of time, still the longest motorsport ever held on February 12, 1908. Starting in New York City, the participants crossed the entire U.S. to San Francisco, which mostly did not have any paved roads. From San Francisco, the participants then took a ship to Alaska, which proved to be unpassable, and they were rerouted by ship to Japan. From Japan, then, they drove to Siberia during the very muddy spring thaw, which their progress was measured not in miles per hour, but by feet per hour. Eventually, the roads cleared, and the first car crossed the finish line in Paris on July 30, 1908. The second car to cross was behind the winner by 26 days, and the race was won by George Schuster of Buffalo, who drove a 1907 Thomas Flyer. You've been listening to the WBFO History Bite. Discover more stories about Western New York's past on the Buffalo History Museum's website. Learn more at buffalohistory.org. For Buffalo Toronto Public Media, I'm Tom Barich. Watch great videos produced by your public media stations online. Find Buffalo Toronto Public Media on YouTube and check out interviews by our WNED classical hosts, original productions from WNED PBS, and so much more. You're listening to What's Next, our place to discuss the important issues of our communities of Western New York and Southern Ontario. We want to hear from you. Click on the Talk to Us option in the WBFO app, and we will work to get your questions or comments on the air. Do you have a story or concern that we should be addressing? Email us using whatsnext at wbfo.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. Dr. Morris, we're with Dr. Jan- Janelle Morris here. At, uh, she's the superintendent of the Olean City uh, District. And uh, before we get to where you are now, I want to take a, another step through your career. You go to, to the Rochester City School District, another school district with its own uh, challenges. And if I'm not mistaken, uh, you were part of a, a three-person administration. If I'm not, uh, is it the first uh, all-female uh, yes. uh, leadership team there in the city of Rochester? Yes. What took you to Rochester? Well, it was the opportunity. Once again, I, I you know, a challenge is a challenge. Mm. And this was a challenge that was presented where I could be the deputy um, of teaching and learning and um, approach systems in the organization and the district from a position that I'd never held before. And in Buffalo, there are no deputies. Uh So it wasn't like, you know, I could aspire to do that in Buffalo. We just didn't have that. And you knew you wanted to be a superintendent. So this is part of the journey. I did. I did. And I was like, so to be best prepared, this is probably a great step to get there. So when I first got there, I was the deputy of teaching and learning. And then the next year, I was able to become the deputy of systems innovation and operation. And Mm. that took me on the other side of the 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 district. So I was able to do like the academic side and then the non-instructional side. Just an amazing experience to be able to learn to prepare me for this role. Right. How long were you there? Rochester. Two years. Two years in Rochester. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What are, were the challenges the same in Rochester as in Buffalo or were they different? They were different. They were different. Um, so we were a brand new administrative team comparatively to Buffalo. It was a different size, different scale. Um, 
but there were just different challenges. We had to gel together as a new team, and then we had, there were so many different challenges that immediately presented themselves. It wasn't something that it was emergent. It was like, here's the keys to the car, (laughs) and um, you have to fix all these things right now. So there was that level of challenge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Olean opens up. Yeah. And you went right for it. Yeah. 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 Tell me about that process coming down to coming to Olean and just I mean just I mean, if you could just take take us inside something that most people don't know a lot about applying to become a superintendent and becoming yeah. one in a in a, a as you called it a city rural district. We're, we're rural adjacent. Rural adjacent. Thank you yes. very much. I yes. really appreciate that. We are that. a small city school district, but once again, um, before I applied, we came down here, and as I said, you know, I've always gone to Ellicottville. Um, we spent a lot of time at Holiday, Holiday Valley, um, but we came down here, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is awesome. <laughs> we took pictures by the squirrels that you'll see on North Union. Right. It was really cool. So I was like, okay, this is really nice. And we were walking around, and it was just so friendly. It was just such a different feel from anything I'd ever done before. And I was like, I want to explore this further. So I put my hat in the ring and went through the interview process. And the more I looked into the data and looked into um, the information I could find about the district, I was like, okay, this is really Mm. I want to try this. And so, thankfully, you know, the board was of the same accord. Right. And so, um, came in, um, presented my idea about a strategic plan and a strategic direction. Um, and they thought that was great. And I was like, wonderful. So, we discussed what that direction would look like. And we've been pursuing that for the past two years. What was inside the data that... Um took you to, uh, obviously you built your strategic plan on the data. So what were were some of the things you saw that needed to be addressed? So some of the things that I saw immediately were um, a a concern with special education Mm. that was being delivered. Um, A lot of those things, once again, it was a data thing. It wasn't, it wasn't a programmatic issue. It was a data thing. And that was something we were able to immediately rectify. Like, I think it was the second week I was here. And we were able to rectify it and able to change that compliance that quickly, issue. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, because it was a data thing. It was it was very, um, it was one of those things that you just had to make a, a pivot in your organizational structure. And it was apparent that if we made this change, we could be in compliance. And now we're in good standing. Okay. So um, it was one of those things that had the immediate effect. Um, And then there were issues that were expressed by multiple stakeholders about climate and culture. So coming off of the pandemic Mm. for many school districts, not certainly not something unique to here, but climate and culture was a huge um, area of concern for many schools and school districts so that was one of the things that our district as well said you know we want to tackle as the school year goes along we want to make sure that our students and staff they all feel like they belong and that they are welcome and you know supported in their school 
um, every day. So we've been working on that as well. The climate and culture. Um, can you give us maybe um, an anecdote of sorts of somebody who expressed a real specific concern about incidents or whatever? Again, I'm going to let you tell me what climate and culture means, but it, what, what were some, what maybe was a thought or some of the thoughts inside so that? So there were some, some concerns that were raised from the board first that sure. they had heard from the, their constituents and from the district that people didn't feel like they belong not everyone and so I also heard that echoed from stakeholders like the union or, or, or such like that and so students so what we did was year one we had a retreat in Ellicottville and an author came to present us to us at that retreat um we reached out to that author and said would you be willing to partner with us for the upcoming school year and just really dive into what does belonging mean for our students and our staff and our faculty and our our community and our students and they were thrilled to have the opportunity so we were very excited to be able to partner with them um it really talked about belonging a belonging in in all sense of the word when you walk into this school you belong here whether you're a staff member here whether you're a student here whether you're a parent or a community member you belong here this building is iconic to this region and it's really one of those things that many people can say to themselves i remember when i went to olean or i remember going there to visit for an occasion or an event it's really one of those places where once you're a husky you're a husky right but what does that pride mean? It means that it's pride that extends to all. And so that was something that we, through the belonging work, really took a hard look at. And I think that it was a very um, good opportunity for people to just kind of challenge some of um, the things that had prevented some of us from feeling like they belonged. And I think that's been a good initiative that we've been carrying on here. You're such a data-driven individual, and yet you know all what it's all about, about being in a classroom and, and working with kids at the same time. So, but you know, so much of this is like what you're talking about here of culture. It's about people, right? Mm -hmm. How do I mean? Is it up to your principals to who? I guess what I'm trying to say is, you know, everybody, every stakeholder is going to have their own issues, right? They're going to maybe not feel part of it, part of it, or they don't feel that sense of belonging. How is that addressed? I mean, is it something that's done on an individual basis, or do you try to let group initiatives kind of take control and see where, where it leads us? Well, our approach was initially we had volunteers from every school, and we have four schools, and they all volunteered to be part of this initiative. So we had little teams at each school. They were volunteering, though. And they came and they learned about belonging. They learned how to, what are some of the things that we might be challenging within ourselves and as a team to examine those beliefs that are preventing us from ensuring that we all feel like we belong. So they went through that really hard work. Mm. Um, at the end of the school year, we extended a climate survey to both our staff 
and our students to take a pulse on how do people feel. Um, three out of four people felt at the staff level like they belonged and that they liked being here. So our challenge this year is to target that other 25%. We want everyone to feel like they belong. So we gave our pulse points to our students and in the spring again, we're gonna do another pulse point with our staff. But we've been doing this ongoing work that's been both at the student level and then we have our stakeholders at our team's level at the schools. They have um, safe space conversations where they allow um, teams to come and just kind of have this conversation like what makes you feel like you belong here what doesn't and then they bring that back to the whole team so that they can have conversations about how can we make this more of a place where it's welcoming and belonging um, belonging is a word everyone could understand um, and and that's something that seemed to resonate with everyone which is why we were so excited that the author was willing to partner with us on this so three out of four felt they were they felt that sense of belonging, which of course is encouraging. And you said you're not done; you've got that no, other quarter to go. Yeah. And you're you're the superintendent. You've got you've I can clearly see you've set up structures here, and you've got people that are helping to uh, employ these initiatives. At the same time, are you hearing any feedback yet about what some people are saying about not feeling that sense of belonging or? Is, there, is that a tougher nut to crack to get that still, information? I mean, it's still a tension. It's not something that went away just because right. we did this belonging initiative year one. This will be something that will continue to be ongoing. We will always continue to revisit our data, revisit what we're doing, and continue to adjust. Right. Um, I think, you know, every time we make a couple of wins, we also have to continue to make sure that we are bringing everyone along in this feeling of belonging. And that includes every staff member. That includes all of our students. And sometimes kids feel like they belong. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes staff feel like they belong. Sometimes they don't. So that's why it's an ongoing challenge. And we're going to continue to rise to that. I know you inherited Popcorn Wednesday. We're here on Popcorn Wednesday. And yes. The building smells absolutely <laughs> magical uh, here today. Um, but is that the... I, the type of thing? I mean, small things like that make a big difference? Yeah, small things do make a difference. Um, we give out, the Parent Teacher Association gives out popcorn at one of our elementary schools, and I went to help them one day. I haven't gotten as many hugs as I got <laughs> that day since I've been here. So, I mean, it was really gratifying. That's just one little thing that um, is an example but there are so many ways that we try to connect with our students and our staff we have a very active foundation and they are very participatory in stuff that we're doing in our schools they want to fund this they want to be a part um, so that's really exciting as well um, so many people want to be a, a contributor to a positive school district and they just have such beautiful visions for where we're going, which we try to capture in our strategic plan that we coll we collaboratively developed last year. So I think that it's it's just those elements of Husky pride that, you know, they just come out and and our staff, our students, our families, they're just so proud to be from this school community. What impact are you still seeing, if any, from COVID on students? So we're still 
like many school districts trying to overcome the academic um, lag that many of our students are experiencing because of the pandemic. We are still working on curricular um, initiatives that will help address that gap. Um, it's less pronounced at our high school, but still it's there. Uh, it's more pronounced at our elementary and our middle school. So we spent this year doing a um, a needs assessment for our English language arts program. And so it's a collaborative um, process that we've developed with our elementary and our middle and our high school teachers. They're all coming, they're looking at the materials we're using and they're gonna go, they're gonna be part of the overall process to analyze what are we doing and how we can we change it to best fit the needs of our students post pandemic. After that, we will focus on math. So we're systematically addressing the different subject areas that are important for our students to have to have their literacy. Um, and we're doing that systematically. So this year will be ELA, next year will be math, then we'll focus on science, and we're making sure that each um, process allows us to look at what we're providing to our students, analyzing that gap, and making sure that we are making sure that they have what they need so that they can start to um, bridge that gap. You clearly see the, uh, the um, data when it comes to the COVID um, reality, the impact of COVID. Yeah. I'm wondering also though, because I have, a, I have a feeling you have, a, you think about a lot of these different elements. Were there lessons learned with some of the distance learning in COVID? I mean, we most certainly heard about kids, a lot of kids struggled with that and I could, I most certainly would have been one of them, I guarantee it. Yeah. Um, but are there opportunities inside that? Maybe moving forward, again, I, I'm a moral on a, whatever places that, that could show up in, in education. I mean, I, I'm sure if you went to your board tomorrow and said, hey, we're going to be doing more Zoom calls, they, they probably wouldn't go for it, right? No, but, I don't but, think anyone would go for no, it. But at the same time, is, are there opportunities inside yeah. there that, that we can maybe see coming down the road? So what it did was it challenged us in terms of how we think about schooling. So it challenged us about remote instruction. What does remote instruction look like? Um, when we talk about our typical snow days and inclement weather days, does it just have to be a day off of instruction? Are there ways that we can make sure that we prepare our instructors and our students to still have elements of learning even though they're at home? That challenge, I think if you had asked somebody five years ago pre-pandemic, I remember being on conversations um, just with the technology. Can we support this type of direction where we would have one-to-one -one devices with everybody? Oh my goodness, the the pushback that you received. But now, it is not uncommon to walk into a district and every student has one-to-one -one devices and is fully um, facile with using them, right? They know how to use them. Our teachers know how to make sure that we make that transition and that pivot. And remember, we did that on a dime right. within a day. We did that. And that's something we learned we could do. Um, we learned how resilient our kids were. We, re we learned that they will go down this path with us for remote learning. And they were able to make that shift we also learned that there are some forums that worked for our kids in the remote learning um, environment and that some didn't. 
we learn that and that's important to keep that that lesson as well because if we ever have to shift again we have learned that you know certain forms work some don't um we've also learned that if we need to um not only will we make sure we're delivering um instruction but we've also thought about our socioeconomic students that still need support so when i was in rochester we were making sure that you know like many school districts not just here um that we're making sure that they have their uh, meals and that we're providing them with that additional um safety net if you will that the schools so often provide so it helps you give that that multi-layered uh, prism when you're looking and trying to analyze if we make a shift um, in a remote learning environment, what do we need to consider? And no one had to think about that five years ago. Right. So this was an, it was an important lesson. All right, Dr. Morris, you, you, you intrigued me right from the beginning when you mentioned this term. Now we have to, I want to explore it a little more. Rural adjacent district. Yes. Olean is a rural adjacent district. It's a city Correct. district, small city. Um, Okay, so what what do you see? What is the impact of being a rural and adjacent district? So we have many small city elements that we uh, align to, but our partners in the area are typically rural mm. school districts. And at heart, we are too. We're a small city because of our configuration, but many things we we do embrace that rural approach. So that's why we call ourselves rural adjacent. So I've never heard that term before. It was something I coined. Oh, <laughs> I have a feeling I should tra- trademark it, right? Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> so, but how does it, does it impact, I mean, I guess you were in Buffalo, you are in Rochester, now you're here, three mm-hmm. city school districts, but this one's rural adjacent. Mm-hmm. So do you see it, how does it show up in, in the student body? Uh, or in the, in the staff for that matter. So it's size, particularly. Mm. Okay. So we're a small city, but we have 1,700 students. So, you know, it's a smaller size. Many of our, our counterparts in the area have small sizes like that that they have to consider. Um, so we are, are fully um, able to relate with that because we're small, too, even though we're a small city. Um we have to worry about um, like traveling long distances when we have to help um, make sure that we're providing resources and support to some of our students, especially those who have the most neediest uh, uh, needs for support. Um, so if we have a student who has a very specialized need because we're in a rural adjacent area, it's, it's not very easy to find educators that might be able to provide a support that a student might need very specifically. Let's say they need speech and we don't have any speech teachers. It's not like we have a bank of teachers around. We have to do some active recruiting. We have to actively try and bring uh, people to this area. Um, So in that regard, we're kind of, you know, in our own little area and it's, it's often hard to get resources or educators to come down here we we treasure every single educator we have Um, and often when we have vacancies it's very difficult to fill them because we don't have a big pool of educators that are 
around mm. or we don't have um, very specific support so you would typically see like in Buffalo or in Rochester right so we have to be creative I was going to mm. say how how are you creative with we, that? Uh, so unfortunately sometimes we have to um, bus students to areas okay. where um, we can find the support but then that means long transit times for them that's not necessarily the ideal but it's what we have to do to try and get them the support that they need um, and that's a huge challenge I mean it's just getting them to what they need is very difficult um, sometimes we don't have the technological infrastructure to support whatever it is that um, we're trying to deliver so if a student lives in a very rural area in the area we have to help assist them with um, education sometimes the hot spots will give them won't work mm. because of where they're located so there are some challenges and then we have to see if we can get them to a place where they can get Wi-Fi or get um, internet access to try and get them connected to what they need. Um, our, as I said, our teachers are amazing. They will work with our students. It's a community. It really is. It's really that community um, feel, that community approach. But sometimes we are removed from those immediate um, supports that you could get if you were in a more urban area. Is the uh, city of Olean district, is it uh, shrinking, increasing? What we are losing students mm -hmm. like many people in the state. Um, we are also experiencing that phenomenon as well. I know this is a little bit of conjecture, but right now we're in the middle of budget time mm -hmm. in Albany. And mm -hmm. um, we most certainly are hearing plenty of stories about the ongoing negotiations, we'll call it that, or posturing when it comes to education aid. I have a sense that you are going to be prepared for no matter what comes your way. <laughs> but how do you take, how do you take this news? Um, again, in a place where, like you said, we're trying to encourage belonging. You're trying to be creative when it comes to how do you, you know, deal with specific issues when it comes to your students. Yeah. Um, what about that? What, how do you so accept that information? So we have been re we've been presented with what potential decreases in funding that we may experience. Once again, we value all the team members who come every day to support our students and and, and keep our district operating as it does. Um, however, I tried to immediately look it over and share that reality of that news with the board, with our admin team, with our community. We put this in our newsletter. We try to let people know that, yes, that was the initial proposal that we were given, but this is where your lobbying and advocacy efforts are important and critical because um, I'm one of those people, you can tell me no, but you're going to have to tell me no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I kind of see that. You're right, right. <laughs> right. So I'm like, just because that was your first offer doesn't mean that's your final offer. Is that your best and final offer? In other words, we still have the ability to make our voice heard on the behalf of our kids, on the behalf of our district, and we should do that. We should be lobbying with our legislators. It shouldn't be a surprise in April or May when we're working on the final budget numbers 
what the state is proposing. And, and it shouldn't be a surprise that we say we're all going to advocate on this. So I've been sharing all the white papers that I can find on proposals and, and changes that have been proposed in foundation aid and, and all the things that we need to consider with our administrative team and with our board and trying to make sure that people are aware and informed. And that way, when you have a conversation that's supposed to be aligned with advocacy, you're coming from it with an information um, direction. You want to be able to say, I understand that there's going to be changes in foundation aid. What we're advocating for is don't do it all at the, at, at once. Right. Don't do it all at the same time because, you know, gradually we'll be able to absorb some of these changes as long as they're reasonable and method methodological, right? But if you just do it all at once, it has a devastating effect on school districts. Everybody needs to be able to say that. So by letting people know what our perspective is and how important this is, then we all are speaking with a unified voice, which is really important because I've already said, we're coming from the part of the state where um, unless we make our voice heard, nobody hears us. We want to make sure we're heard. You clearly have shown me that you loved being in the classroom as a teacher, and I don't have any doubt that you love being an administrator <laughs> just talking to you. What are the qualities, or what are the qualities uh, that make a good educator? Somebody who is in this, what, what are there common characteristics? Yes, yeah. yes, yes. A love for your students mm. and a love for what you're doing in terms of teaching them, helping them learn, helping them achieve, being able to find joy in those small and large wins that we see every day. Um, being able to enjoy having that type of relationship building with families and with, uh, with your students and with your colleagues. I think all of that is important to be a successful educator. And no matter what, where you are in the organizational picture, that's a common thing that you would need to have for success. And I have a feeling you have a big picture idea about this, but for the future of education, the future of education, we will certainly hear it as uh, in a lot of different ways. You know, people have their own criticisms of the education system, but do you see uh, change is always going to be coming, right? That's mm -hmm. just, that's one thing we know. It's always the same. It's mm -hmm. always change. Do you see, uh, what do you see on the horizon for education? Well, I see a lot of um, infusion of technology, whether that's in an AI environment, if that's uh, more efficient ways of utilizing one-to-one -one technology, uh, I see more creative ways of being able to demonstrate that you have learned something, being able to acquire that information, sharing that with people, being able to have more um, hands-on, real experiences with things be way before you leave the security of the K-12 environment. And I think the more that we move, what the pandemic has done is challenge some of those things that we've said, oh, there's no way we can be flexible with this. You had to be flexible. It was the only way that we could keep this going. And I think that challenge will continue to persist. 
Well, Dr. John Morris, uh, thanks for letting us into uh, Olean City School District and uh, sharing with our audience uh, about all the challenges here, but it sounds like a lot of joy to go with you as well. A lot of joy, always. Thank you, Dr. Morris. Thank you. This is What's Next on WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station.